Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm going to pray for us here in just a second before we get started. We've been moving through the book of John, uh, and this morning we'll be looking at the end of John chapter 3. Uh, but I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll, uh, we'll get into that shortly. Uh, let's pray. God, thank you for uh, the opportunity to be together this morning already to spend some time um, singing, uh, hearing from your word, being together. God, now as we uh, take just a few moments and sort of dive into your word and look at what you would have for us, God, I pray that you would be at work to speak to our hearts and minds. God, I fully recognize that my words are of little importance. But God, your words are of utmost importance. And so I pray that we would hear from you. God, over the, the next few minutes, I, I, I pray that um, your presence would be real to us, that we would meet with you in this place, that we would be changed because of it. God, we ask this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus. Amen. I don't really know about you guys, but I. I didn't really go to church a lot as a child until I was about nine years old. Um, but I do remember going to uh, vacation Bible school as a child at least once or twice. And uh, I remember being introduced to this sort of wild man from the Bible named John the Baptist. And he's the kind of Bible story character I think that sort of captures your imagination. At least he did for me as a child. He was presented as this guy sort of running around the desert, wearing camel skins, uh, eating locusts, kind of gross, and taking honey from beehives. And for whatever reason, uh, the way he was presented to me was this larger-than-life picture, sort of a fascinating character. And he is a fascinating character from Scripture. Uh, kind of an amazing um, character from the Bible because he's sort of the last of the Old Testament prophets um, that came before Jesus but point to Jesus at the same time. He's a contemporary of Jesus, a, a relative of Jesus. Um, and Jesus calls him at one point in time uh, the greatest person ever born of a woman. He's eventually beheaded by King Herod Antipas, uh, ultimately for pointing out Herod's immorality. And in the passage we're about to read this morning, uh, John the Baptist plays sort of a central role and what John the author has to say about Jesus. So let me read this passage and then we'll move on from there. The John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Adon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, 
but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets a seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Right, just as we begin to dive into this uh, section, just a quick reminder that this is the fourth successive section in the book of John that the author John is using to point to how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that God has ever promised. Everything that God's people have, have been waiting on, everything they've been promised, Jesus is ultimately the fulfillment of those things, and in a greater way, perhaps, than maybe was expected. In chapter, two, in chapter 2, we saw Jesus change the water into wine um, at, this, uh, at a Jewish wedding. And he sort of announces his messianic kingdom as he does that and points toward a new way to be purified before God. Second part of chapter 2, Jesus steps into the temple and announces that he is the new place where God and men are to meet. He's the ultimate mediator between God and mankind. And then last week at the beginning of chapter 3, we saw Jesus step sort of into the uh, institutionary of uh, contemporary Jewish teachers like the Pharisees. And Jesus is presented as the savior of his people, like the snake that Moses lifted up in the desert. Those who look to Jesus are those who will be saved. And then this week, at the end of chapter 3, uh, even though Jesus is present, um, he's not directly uh, speaking or involved. We see Jesus sort of step into the realm of the Old Testament prophets. And John presents him as someone who provides so much more than just earthly repentance and baptism. That's what John the Baptist was doing, offering earthly repentance and baptism, ultimately to point to Jesus, who could offer something greater. And instead, John the author, at the end of chapter 3, um, presents Jesus as the person who provides eternal life, the way to be uh, with God permanently and sufficiently. In some ways, this passage is sort of a continuation of what happened last week at the beginning of John chapter 3, the verse 21 verses that Ben talked about. There's a bit of comparing and contrasting going on um, that John is doing, I think, um, to intentionally point to something. In this passage at the end of chapter 3 and verses 31 through 36, um, that's John the author's commentary on what these stories are about when he's saying Jesus is from God. And uh, he sort of makes that clear. Last week, Nicodemus essentially says the same thing at the beginning of chapter 3, even though Nicodemus doesn't really grasp what that means. But also in this passage, we see that Nicodemus was in Jerusalem. John was in the desert. Nicodemus was a prominent leader. John was kind of out there on his own in the wilderness, doing his own thing. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. John is sort of presented as a prophet. Nicodemus can't seem to grasp what Jesus is about, even though he knows something's up. 
John fully gets it. Nicodemus doesn't fully understand what it means for the focus to be fully on Jesus. And John gets that clearly and intentionally points to Jesus. And so I think John is doing some interesting things here to make his point. Like I said, it's most clearly seen in verses 31 through 36. And so if we just step through this passage for a moment, um, break it down for just a second, in verses 22 through 24, Jesus and the disciples move from Jerusalem into the countryside, and he's near John, and Jesus' disciples are out baptizing people like John was doing. Beginning of John chapter 4, John makes it clear Jesus wasn't actually doing the baptizing, his disciples were, but they're out there with John the Baptist as well. Verses 25 through 26, John the Baptist disciples begin to have a conversation with someone uh, about what baptism is all about, about ritual purification. Ritual water purification uh, would have been an unusual thing for Jesus' Jewish contemporaries to participate or understand, but baptism was a whole other thing. That wasn't normal unless someone was converting to Judaism. Whatever that conversation that uh, John the Baptist's disciples have with this person, whatever that's about, it leads them ultimately to come to John the Baptist and say, Hey, uh, Rabbi, he who was uh, with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. It's kind of an interesting thing, right? Because there's a hint of jealousy here. There's something going on uh, where John the Baptist's disciples don't really... It's just something they don't like about what's happening. And even though they undoubtedly knew who Jesus was, they don't even say his name. They just say that person that you bore witness to, which is kind of interesting and telling. Then in verses 27 through 30, John fully turns the focus toward Jesus. He tells his disciples, you've heard me say all along that Jesus is the Messiah. You've heard me say all along that he's from God. And then I'm only here to point to him. I'm only here to be a signpost pointing to Jesus. John goes on to uh, sort of present his own parable where he's like the best man at the wedding. It's not about him. It's about Jesus. And when it's about Jesus, then there's great joy for John. That leads John to make this incredible statement. Uh, he must increase I must decrease. He's saying, guys, it's all about him. It always has been. And if we make it about me, then we're missing the point, right? And then in verses 31 through 36, John, the author, starts making this very sweeping and very broad Christological statement. In the previous verses, John the Baptist was telling his disciples that Jesus is Greater. And in the story of Nicodemus, John the author is telling uh, the story of how Jesus ultimately is the Savior. And so at the end of chapter 3 and verses 31 through 36, like I said, John is now explaining why Jesus is greater. He makes statements that Jesus is from heaven, that Jesus is from God, that he's speaking for God because he's been with God. And God sent Jesus with his spirit because God is the Father and Jesus is the Son. And God loves the Son. And God has given all things into his hands. 
And whoever puts their faith in the Son, well, those are the ones who are purified forever. Those are the ones who will be in God's presence forever. And these last few verses, 31 through 36, I think are probably what John the author was ultimately getting at in telling us these stories about Nicodemus and then John the Baptist. Jesus is greater than anything that's come before. Jesus is greater than anything that's been here before um, that's made a way to get to God. Jesus is greater than all that. So ultimately, trust Jesus. Which we know that's the whole point of John writing this gospel. He says that at the end to point to Jesus. Now with all that said, there are a lot of directions we could go with this passage. But I really just want to focus in on something specific that John says. Um, primarily because I think Ben got at the heart of what this chapter is about last week already. And so I want to just focus in on something we see in two verses, verses 27 and verse 30. These incredible statements that John the Baptist makes. John 3, 27, John answered when his disciples came to him. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And then in John 3, 30, he says, he must increase, but I must Decrease. That's an incredible statement. John fully understood his assignment. John fully understood who he was and who Jesus was. John understood what life in the kingdom of Jesus looks like. Nicodemus wasn't quite there yet. But John got it. And we see it all through the Gospels. Jesus constantly says things like this to his followers. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Or for he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Jesus makes this intentional point to his followers constantly, to his disciples, that life in the kingdom doesn't look like life in an earthly kingdom would look. It's about serving. It's not about power. Right? It's about decreasing. It's not about increasing. Jesus made that clear to his followers. Life in the kingdom looks different. It doesn't look like life in the world. Isaiah 57, 15 says this. It's also, I think, a pretty uh, incredible passage. But Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. The verse is, is wild because it says that God dwells in high and holy places. But then it says that God dwells with those who are contrite and humble. Right, we can't miss that, right? The God of the universe, the creator of all things, dwells with those who are contrite and humble. Like, what's, what's the point in all of this? What's the point? Here at Redemption, we say that our goal is to make the real Jesus known. To one another, to our city, to our neighborhood, to our community. And the reality of that, the reality of having that as a goal in light of what 
John the Baptist is saying in this passage in light of what Jesus says elsewhere is that we will fail miserably at that task if we make ourselves the center and focus of God's kingdom. If our pridefulness and our own desire for significance and to increase trumps our humility. John fully understood two things. Everything he was able to do, everything he has, whatever prominence and position he had in the kingdom of God and among his disciples and among whoever else, it all came from God. And whatever he had was all about grace. And he also understood that Jesus was the focus of it all. He wasn't the focus or the center of anything. If he was about the business of pointing to Jesus, which was ultimately his God-given task here on earth, to point to Jesus, then he couldn't be about himself. And when John's disciples asked him about Jesus, if he had promoted himself as something or someone important, as something or someone other than a signpost that just points to Jesus, he would have been functionally diminishing the greatness of Jesus by increasing his own importance. By acknowledging God's grace, by acknowledging Jesus' greatness instead, John, in, John decreased and Jesus increased. The reason that I think John's words are so profound and important is that this kind of perspective does not come naturally to the human heart. This perspective of humility with a pointing to Jesus, a focus on Jesus, does not come naturally to the human heart. That sort of perspective and focus is one that is always and only the fruit of the grace of God at work in our hearts and minds. It is far more natural for you and I that we see ourselves elevated and exalted no matter what it may cost. I think it's okay for us to admit that we are by nature prone to pride and self-sufficiency. And humility doesn't just happen. Pride and self-sufficiency are both the enemies of humility. They're related. And even those of us who may not seek to elevate our status or significance, like publicly, even though we may not feel like we're out there trying to make a big deal of ourselves, we're still affected by pride in some ways when we're self-sufficient. When we say, I can do this on my own. Humility can only be sustained and nurtured and pursued by God's grace. And our pride and our self-sufficiency are enemies of that humility. Right? For us as people, as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, it is entirely feasible that we might concede that God is the source of all things. Like John said in verse 27, and at the same time, believe that we are the focus of all those things. John didn't do that, though. To John the Baptist, Jesus is both the source of all things, God is the giver of all things, and Jesus is the center of all things. Jesus must increase, I must decrease. 
to John, the important role that he was given, the last and greatest of the prophets pointing to Jesus, that role wasn't the reward. Jesus was the reward. Jesus was the focus of it all. Church, I believe that we would be remiss to walk away from this passage this morning without hearing the call to have Jesus increase in us, among us, through us, and for us to decrease. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. If we want to be a church that makes the real Jesus known, if we want to be people that make the real Jesus known, then we have to live and think and believe and behave in a way where Jesus is the center and focus of it all. And it requires a changing of our mind. It requires a changing of our perspective. It requires a changing of the way that we think. And that starts not with our trying and doing better. That starts with our acknowledgement that all we have comes from God and we desperately need Him. And ultimately that it's all about Jesus. It's not about us. And the more that we increase ourselves, the more that Jesus decreases, and the more that we point people to things that don't matter and can't save and have no eternal significance. So I guess what I'm really calling us to is this, is to make the desire of John to see Jesus increase, to make that our own desire. I'm calling us to change the perspective of our hearts and minds and to think differently. To make sure that we are seeing things with the right kind of self-awareness. Like John did, I'm calling us to see that God is the source of all things. That everything we have comes from God. It's all by His grace. That God is ultimately our treasure, our reward. Not the things we have, not the things that God has given us. If we recognize that, then maybe we can decrease any idolatrous love of lesser things that we've held on to? Why would we hold on to the things of this earth, be they material, be they things like pleasure and significance and power and money and feeling of importance when we can hold on to the one that gives us all things? John didn't see his significance and his role as something to be held on to. He saw Jesus as the center and focus all things. He saw Jesus correctly, and he made it about Jesus. Like John did, I'm calling us to have the right perspective on life, to see Jesus as greater, to find joy in seeing Jesus increase, not joy in our increasing, not joy in our significance and importance, whatever role we play, but joy in seeing Jesus increase, joy in elevating Jesus like John did, I'm calling us to increase our passion for Jesus' reputation and decrease our passion for our own. Like John did, I'm calling us to increase our faith in Jesus to provide for us and to decrease our fear-fueled efforts to secure our futures on our own through our own self-sufficiency. Like, it is my hope and prayer that Jesus would increase through our lives, through our community, through our church, that Jesus' glory would be made known through us, that God's love would be made known through us, that Jesus' name would be made known through us, 
that the real Jesus would be made, would be made known through us. It would be less and less about us, more and more about Jesus. Jesus has the only name that ultimately matters. Because he's the only one that can save. The only one who is Lord and King over all. Right? And in light of who Jesus is, in light of what we see even in this passage, much less the rest of Scripture, that we would ever desire people to think great of us makes no sense. Because Jesus is the only one who is worthy of all worship and praise and adoration. So for us to point to ourselves, to constantly lift ourselves up, when we're only functionally decreasing the name of the one who matters the most and pointing people to something they can't save. He must increase, we must decrease. He must increase, I must decrease. My church, I hope that this would mark our lives, our church, that Jesus increases, and that we decrease. Right, as we come to a time of response, um, I would just encourage you over the next few minutes that as we enter this time of response, to maybe just take some time to be honest with yourself, with God, about the ways in which we feel and act when we see an opportunity to increase ourselves in the eyes of others. Honest about how we are quick to take credit or make much of ourselves. Maybe honest about our false humility or self-sufficiency at the expense of looking to Jesus and recognizing His grace. In these things, where are we missing opportunities to make much of Jesus? Are we even considering how we can point to Jesus instead of ourselves? Making much of Jesus doesn't come through deflecting comments, I mean compliments. It doesn't come through some sense of um, false humility. Making much of Jesus comes by actively staying aware of the grace that God has given us, that God has given us, that God is continuing to give to us and to demonstrate to us through Jesus. Right? Church, our, our call is not to feel shame and guilt about how we've made much of ourselves. The call this morning is to actually recognize that God is the source of all things, that Jesus is the center of all things, and to actively learn to look to and depend upon the grace of God to make much of Jesus in every way that we possibly can by recognizing God's grace by pointing to Jesus. Like I said, we're going to enter into a time of response like we do every Sunday morning. During that time of response, multiple things happen. In a little bit, Andy and Eliza will come back up and help lead us in worship through singing. Um, we have an opportunity during this time um, to give, most of us give in other ways, uh, but it's an opportunity to um, to reflect upon the fact that when we uh, tithe and when we give, it's an act of worship. I want to encourage you to at least acknowledge that during this time, uh, if you normally give through your bank account or some other ways. Uh, it's an opportunity for us to respond um, in prayer if we need to reflect for a moment on what we've heard this morning, it's an opportunity for you to sit where you are and just get with God for a second.
second, pray if that's something you need to do by yourself or with another person. But it's also an opportunity for us to take communion. Every Sunday at Redemption, we take communion together because in doing so, we're remembering what Christ has done for us and proclaiming to one another that we believe in. Like we're remembering the truth of the gospel and proclaiming to one another that it's true. So if you're here this morning, whether you're uh, a member of Redemption Church or not, if you can remember the work of Christ on our behalf, if you're willing to proclaim to one another that it's true, that I would invite you to come and take communion as well. I'm going to pray for us, and we'll continue on at that time of response. God, thank you for this reminder from your word this morning that you are good and gracious, God. You are the provider of all things. God, that you've willingly given up yourself to allow us to meet with you, to be with you, to be connected to you, to be your child, to have you be our father. God, over the next few minutes as we continue to respond. Pray that you would make us aware of the ways which we've promoted ourselves in your expense. God, I pray that you would help us to find grace in that. Not shame and guilt, but grace in the fact that we can depend on your grace. Grace in the fact that we can depend on you and things can be different. our lives to point others to you. God, over the next few minutes, I pray that Jesus would continue to be lifted up in this place and be drawn to you because of Christ. God, we ask all this in the name of your Son.